The rest of you, I'd like to invite you to turn over your Bibles to the book of Revelation with me. We've been working through a series this late spring and summer through the book of Revelation. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our text today beginning on page 1040. That's actually the first page of the book of Revelation in our, one of our pew Bibles, and we'll move forward from there. You know, it's easy in the book of Revelation to get caught up in all of the fascinating stuff. You know, there's language in there about the seven seals and the seven bowls of wrath and the seven trumpets and descriptions of dragons and beasts and of horses who has lion's heads and the bottomless pits and the peaks into the throne room of God, the, the hailstone that weighs a hundred pounds and the list just kind of goes on and on. There's a lot of things in there that can grab our attention and with that grab our fascination. But as we do that, we can miss some themes that are, that are just really foundational to the book of Revelation, which ultimately lead, lead us to deal with one of the major themes, if you will, about the book of Revelation and are central to it playing its role in our lives, which is for our foreknowledge of the future to change the way that we live today, to change the choices, the identity, who we align ourselves with in this moment. And, and really, the issue that we need to deal with is what does the book of Revelation teach us about heaven and about hell? But I want you to understand that these aren't themes that just kind of jump up all by themselves, but they are a natural extension of foundational themes that we see throughout the book of Revelation. One of those themes is the holiness of God. You know, early on, we hear the angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. And the holiness of God is, is central to the book of Revelation. Over and over again, we see Him high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. He's different. He's holy. He's set apart. He's pure. But then again, one of the common themes of the book of Revelation, in contrast to the holiness of God, is the, is the stalwart unrighteousness of humanity. This incredible resistance to letting God be God in our lives. In chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, as is, is God is, is bringing literally a, a plague on the earth to bring people back into repentance, it says, and the people do not repent of the works of their hands. In chapter 14, as the angels, three angels are sent to proclaim God's message, and they're literally proclaiming it from the skies. The message can be heard all around the world, everybody in their own language. It's the message of the gospel, the chance to be forgiven and to be transformed and to live for God and people don't respond. And there's this, this, this message from the book of Revelation that despite all of God's best efforts, there are many who are going to say, no thanks, want to do things my way, in the world's way. As you think about the holiness of God and the resistance of humanity, additional themes begin to emerge, which are the themes of the victory of the saints and the judgment of the sinners. Early on in the book of Revelation, as Jesus is writing to the churches and he's warning them about succumbing to some of the spiritual potholes that can, they can hit in their lives, and we had a lengthy series about that earlier this summer. You know, there's always the word of promise, and to him who overcomes, and there's the theme of the victory of the saints, and it's and a little later in the, in the book of Revelation, it speaks as because, because Jesus is Lord, he's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, the Lamb will overcome, and, and they that are with him will overcome, and there's this sense of, of the victory of the saints, and that's a prevailing sense. God is trying to communicate to all of us that if we walk with him, we eventually win, no matter how bad it can get between here and there. 
And with that, there is the warning of the judgment of the saints. We see that in a number of places. In chapter 20, verse 15, it says, If anyone's name is not found in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. It says, If anyone worshiped the beast, then he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And there's this judgment, this message of the judgments of the saints. In all of that, the holiness of God, the, the rebellion of humanity, the victory of the saints, and the judgment of sinners leads to these themes of heaven and hell. What happens? How do, how, do, how do the believers experience the victory? And what happens to those who are judged as the sinners? And you have, as you move to the end of the book, the teachings of the, of the reality of heaven and of hell. And they are designed to be warnings to us and encouragements to us. That as we know the future, it will change who we are in the present so that we can change our destination as we walk with God. Now, so my objective today as we've been working through this secondary series entitled Revelations from Revelation is for us to deal with this issue of heaven and hell. What does the book of Revelation say about heaven and hell? Now, I know that this is a, a difficult concept for us for a couple different reasons. One, we, we live in a, a time, literally, where the whole concept of, that some get and some don't, it's just not very popular, you know? I mean, in the last century, we had whole nations that tried to build themselves that no matter what you did, everybody was supposed to get the same, right? You know, so it's a whole idea of equality. So the idea that, that some might get to go to heaven and some might not isn't very popular today. But it's also a very emotional decision for us. Because every one of us sitting here has somebody who's a part of our life orbit that we care about deeply. And we're either convinced that they're not going to heaven or we're not sure that they are. And it gets very emotional, very personal. And although my objective is every week for you to, if you have an argument with what's proclaimed from the pulpit, it's an argument that you would have to have with the Word of God and not with me. In particular today, that's really my objective. I want to set out before you the Word of God from the book of Revelation that talks about heaven and about hell. And with very little interpretation, just let it speak to you. So that you have to have an argument with God if you don't like what it says or don't believe what you think. And, and listen, it's out there all the time. I mean, you know, there, there are people who say, well, I, you know, I just can't believe in, 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 you know, when the Bible says that anybody's going to go to hell. And, and, and there's lots of people that you know are like that. How can a loving God send anybody? You know, if you're going to have an argument, I want you to be having an argument with the Word of God, not with me. Okay? That's my objective as we go through this. What that's going to necessitate is, is a lot of Scripture. So if you want to, you can flip along with me. I'm going to give you all the references as I go. And just keep your finger moist and you keep flipping. Or you can just listen as I read these. And, and, and I want to try to answer three questions. And your, and your sermon outlines are laid out this way. What does the book of Revelation say that heaven and hell are going to be like? What are they going to be like? Secondly, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell and why? What's the difference between the two? Those are the three questions I'm going to try to answer. So we're going to start first with the question of what are heaven and hell like? And let's start with hell. It's the least popular of the alternatives. But sadly, if you read the book of Revelation, it would say that that's where the majority of people are making a choice to go. Let's start with chapter 14. I'm going to back up. I've got chapter 14, verse 11 listed for you there. I'm going to start with verse 9 and just read a little bit in context. This is in the context of these angels proclaiming the gospel on a worldwide basis. And, a, and it's in verse 9 it says, And a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in his image... 
The beast in the image there are a picture of, they are, at this point, the beast is, is, is a worker, a, a co-worker with Satan, if you will. And he's trying to lead people away from, from godliness, away from God. It says, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hands, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, the description of judgment and of heaven and of hell, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. In chapter 19, verse 20, John is instructed by God to write. And let me pick up in verse 19 and and start and read down into verse 20. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And this is a picture of the, the final conflict, if you will, between heaven and earth. But the beast was taken prisoner, along with him the false prophet, who had performed the signs on his, on his authority, but we, by which he had deceived those who had accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You have this imagery of the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and with brimstone. And these are captured, if you will, from the Old Testament where God rained down fire of brimstone and sulfur on, on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in their, in their, um, in their uh, ju- in judgment of their immorality and their abandonment of God. Chapter 20, the 10th verse. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Continuing, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's what this is. Hell is described as the second death, the eternal death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There are other verses that speak to this, but I think this is enough for us to get the the true sense of what Revelation is teaching us about the nature of hell. It's a place of torment. It's a place of difficulty. These imageries of of, fire and brimstone and sulfur and heat and of that kind of thing... you know, there isn't a reason not to understand, to, to accept them literally. But even if you want to embrace them symbolically, what they're trying to communicate to us is that hell is a place where there's not a single molecule of the presence of God. And because everything good comes from God, hell is a place where there is a perfect absence of anything that is good. So you think of anything that you consider to be good, it's not there in hell. The idea of, you know, I'm going to storm the gates of hell and take over and we're going to have this eternal party, that is just hogwash. Hell is going to be a place where it's your worst nightmare on steroids multiplied by a thousand, you know, cubed. You know, it's, you just cannot, it's the absolute absence of any molecule of the presence of God and therefore of anything that's good. Now heaven. Let's pick up with chapter 15, verse 2. Yeah, we'll start with verse 1, just to get it in the works here. 
Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath would be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory from the beast, his image, and the number of his name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. Because all the nations will come and worship before you. Because your righteous acts have been revealed. The imagery of the sea of glass, and it's, it's an interesting picture, but that not only would they, evi- they uh, 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 value the calmness of the sea, but glass was just kind of coming into its own in this era of, of when the Apostle John was writing. They hadn't mastered their techniques yet, so a lot of the glass that they made was kind of smoky or, or it had bubbles in it. It wasn't clear. But glass that was really clear was just priceless to them. And here, heaven is pictured as a place where all of the victors, the saints, are standing on the sea of glass and they're, and they're playing their harps and they're singing to God, you know, in celebration. Now, that's a picture of heaven. Now, I want a little side note here, okay? Some of you, you think of standing around for all of eternity, playing a harp and singing to God. Eh, I'm not sure that's my, you know, idea of a great date night, right? You know, I, I could come up with something different I'd rather be doing, you know? That kind of, you get, you get that idea, you know? And, and you know, somebody say, you know, I'd rather just play golf all day, you know? And every shot's a hole in one, you know, kind of, that'd, that'd be perfect. You know, we have that kind of imagery and we think, you know what? Day of golf, hole in one, six flags, you know? Singing to God, two flags. You know those commercials? You know, that kind of idea. But once we go through the transformation and we receive our resurrected bodies and all of our new nature, i got to tell you, anything but celebrating the glory of God is going to be two flags. And the thing that we're going to want to do more than anything else, the sixth flag, is going to be celebrating God. That's what heaven's going to be like. Pick up in chapter 21. Starting with the first verse, and, and I'm going to read a lot of this. So you may just want to follow along silently in your, in your Bibles while I read. All of chapter 21 is about the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And, and, and it's just incredible what we read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. It says, look, God's dwelling is with men. He will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. God wanted us to know what was going to happen. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty from the spring of living water as a gift. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me and said, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. 
Her radiance was like a precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. And on the gates, names were inscribed, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles. Imagery here is with the gates facing in all directions that all nations are able to come. And, and the, the names of the sons of Israel, the tribes, and of the 12 tribes, and of the 12 apostles, this is a, a picture of the fullness of God's people. All, all, through all generations, those who are God's are in this new Jerusalem. The one who spoke with me, verse 15, had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in the square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Now, 12,000 stadia is like 1,400 to 1,500 miles, I think, is the way to understand that. And it's a cube. So you imagine the city, it's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles high. In the picture, the Holy of Holies was built like a cube. Its height, its depth, and its width were exactly the same. The Holy of Holies was a place where God was. Now, I can't even fathom. I mean, what's a satellite rotate around the earth at? 125 miles or something? Imagine the city is 1,500 miles high. I hate to fall out of that window and fall, right? Anyways, let me go on. I trivialize it. I didn't mean to. Then he measured the wall, 144 cubits. It's about 200 feet thick walls. According to the human measurement, which the angel used, the building materials of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundation of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And he's going to run through 12 stones here. And these would have been on the breastplate of the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He wore a breastplate that had a different stone that represented each of the 12 tribes of the people of God. And these are the 12 stones that are listed for us here. The city is built out of those who are the people of God. The 12 gates, verse 21, are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The broad street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. There's no church buildings. The whole thing's a church building. The city did not need the sun or the the moon to shine in it because God's glory illuminated it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter into it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Just continuing on for a few verses in chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the broad street of the city, on both sides of the river, was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. There's Whatever you need to thrive is there. God, it's sufficient. It's full. The leaves of the trees, the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist and the people will not need lamp, light, or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. When you get this picture of heaven, it's a place where everything is 100% good. There's no evil. There's no difficulties. There's no frustration. There's any of those things that we would look at as, as it's all gone. Everything that we need to thrive in our relationship with God, it tells us that God's going to be our neighbor, you know, in heaven. He's going to dwell with us. And it's a place where there is the all-encompassing goodness 
of God. Well, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? It's not my choice. It's not yours. God determines that. We see some places in the scripture where it tells us about those whom identified as those who are going to spend eternity experiencing the second death, which is hell. We pick up in chapter 18, verse 2. He says, I cried out in a mighty voice. It has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. And if you read through, and there's several places in the book of uh, Revelation where it speaks about Babylon, but it's, it's humanity organized without God, seeking to be self-sufficient and independent, exerting its will against God. And, and, it's, and it's pictured as Babylon. Babylon the Great has fallen. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of our sexual immorality, which brings wrath. If we drink the cup that the world offers us, this Babylon the Great, life without God, exerting our own passions against our allegiance to God, he says that with it, it brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown weary from her excessive, excessive luxury. In chapter 20, verse 15, we see another description of those who will spend eternity in this second death, the lake of fire. It says, And anyone anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You pick up in chapter 21, verse 8. We read this just a moment ago. But it says, The cowards, unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just a couple of words here about some of the meanings. The idea of cowards there is, is those who, who say that they have an interest or an allegiance to God, but in the face of worldly pressure, do not have enough courage to stand for their faith, but in their cowardice they yield and they change. So there's no place for them in the kingdom. And in this particular age, as we remember reading earlier from the things, there was all these churches, whether they're in Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or whatever, was facing tremendous pressure to, to yield to their worship of the emperor and to acknowledge that the emperor was somehow in a god. And, and many folks caved to that pressure rather than suffer the consequences. And the scripture says the cowards, the unbelievers, those who are unde- undependable and lack faith, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of people who say, hey, you know, my role, they give you your job card and say, I'm a sorcerer, you know. You know, call on me. We don't have that. But, you know, some cultures today still have witch doctors. You go to the witch doctor to stave off the spirits or whatever to, to get fixed, if you will. Do we have it in our own culture? I don't know. I, I would probably challenge you to think about things like tarot cards and fortune tellers and palm readers and horoscopes, lucky charms. The idolaters and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with sulfur and fire. We pick up again in chapter 22, verse 15, very much the same flavor. Outside are the dogs. The best we can understand is that those were just evil, nasty people. The, the outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Really, if you want to look at this, is that really what, God, what happens is that if you live a life here and you say, I exercise my right to choose, and my choice is I don't want God in my life, then God respects that choice, and that's the experience that you have for eternity. There's no presence of God. That's who goes to hell, at least is the way you read it from this. Say, I, I don't want to have anything to do. I, I'm exercising my choice. God has enough respect, enough love for you as a person that if you reject him, he's going to just finalize that rejection for eternity. Now you come to heaven. Who gets to go to heaven? You pick up in verse 
18, chapter 4. Again, this is that context of Babylon and drinking of the wrath. And, and in verse 4 it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of their plagues. And when really those who get to, to go to heaven are those who have heeded God's voice to come out from the world, to be different, not to be cowardly, not to be vile, not to be unbelievers, not to be engaging in adultery or participating with sorcerers. We come out and we're different. Those are those who move forward. Chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw the thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of God's Word. In other words, those who, who get to be with God are those who testify to Christ and testify to the truth of God, who have not worshipped the beast or His image, who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They got to come to life and reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. Chapter 22. Chapter, sorry, chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty. If you thirst for God, he's going to give to you from the spring of living water as a gift. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's those who have the courage to overcome, to be the victor in this struggle, to live for God in this lifetime. In verse 27 of the same chapter, where it says, Nothing profane will ever enter in. No one whose name does, no one who does what is vile or false, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's those who in this world choose God and choose to live for God to get to experience heaven. God honors that request again. If you choose God in this lifetime, God will finalize that and it will become your eternal experience. Well, why are some... Quote, unquote, why, why are those who choose Christ qualified to go to heaven and those who choose to reject God destined for eternity without God? Just a few verses for you, beginning with the... We have some heavenly chimes here to go along with this. And glad to hear you laugh. You're still listening. All right, here we go. Verse 14 of chapter 7. Let's start with verse 13. It says, Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people robed in white? And where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, John's saying, why don't you tell me? You know better than I do. And he said that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The robes here stands for their life, their character, their persona, their essence, their being, their soul. We've already read that nothing unclean, nothing vile, nothing dirty will be allowed into the kingdom of God. We know that it was from Isaiah that our, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. So we stand before God with dirty robes and those who get to go in are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Very much the same spirit in chapter 22, verse 14. When Jesus said, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Here again are those who have had their filthy rags washed white by the forgiveness that God gives through the blood of Jesus Christ spilt on the cross and its application to our lives by our faith in Jesus Christ and we are forgiven. Verse 17, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. Those who get to enter by the gates into the heavenly city, which is the new Jerusalem, which is being with God in eternity, are those who have listened to God's voice to come and to have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
by placing their faith in Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Have you come? Are you inviting others to come? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word of hope. In some ways, we've been overwhelmed by the horrific picture of what awaits any of us if we've not had our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. It scares us. It intimidates us. But that's exactly why you have given it to us. Because our knowledge of the future can change how we live today. God, it's simply your word that calls us today. Aren't going to be peals of thunder and signs of great power. Not some special sign like sending somebody back from the dead or some overwhelming trick that would be so impressive that people would say, oh, i got to believe what the revelation shows us this never happens. It's simply the voice of the Spirit and of the bride, the church, saying, come, come. God, thank you for the word of hope that we can come to be washed and to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life so that when we stand before the judgment seat, the way will be pointed through the gates to enter into the heavenly city. God, thank you for the word of hope. But he who has ears, hear. Let us have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.